This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Art Curious, Stories of the Unexpected, Slightly Odd, and Strangely Wonderful in Art History is a brand new book with lots of weird and wildly entertaining stories that haven't been covered on this podcast. Stories like the rise of everybody's favorite painter of the pretty, Claude Monet, and how all those water lilies and haystacks were actually subversive badassery. How some late 19th and early 20th century women may possibly be the first abstract artists. And what do toenail clippings and a chunk of Caroline Kennedy's birthday cake have to do with one of Andy Warhol's most enduring legacies. Art Curious, the book, will be released on September 15, 2020, but you can pre-order now to reserve your copy. Pre-order links are available in the show notes or at our website, artcuriouspodcast.com slash book. That's artcuriouspodcast.com slash book. This season of the Art Curious Podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Anchor Light. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com to learn all about their artist residency programs, exhibitions, and more. How is it that some things can become so, so popular and then fade from memory so quickly? Trends come and go, and fads usually are short-lived, sure. So it's not a huge mystery, but how can a highly lauded and celebrated public figure, for example, move from acclaim to obscurity with hardly a second thought? In our own age and with the internet at the ready, our footsteps last a little bit longer. But over 150 years ago, there lived an artist so praised, so celebrated, that people would visit her art studio from the world over. But by the beginning of the 20th century, few remembered her name. Luckily for us, though, that is no longer the case. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. In season seven, we're uncovering the coolest artists you don't know. And today, it's the story of Edmonia Lewis, self-made woman, sought-after American expat sculptor, and one of the first women of African-American and Native American heritage to make it to the big time. This is the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. Mary Edmonia Lewis is believed to have been born on July 4, 1844, though no one knows exactly for sure, and the years of her birth that have been bandied about range from about 1840 through 1845. What is known, though, is that she was born free in the town of Greenbush, New York, a black woman not born into an enslaved family in the U.S. in the years preceding the Civil War. Her father, Samuel Lewis, was of African and Haitian descent, while her mother, Catherine, was of African-American and Native American descent, with families stemming from either the Chippewa tribe or a subtribe related to the Ojibwe from Canada's First Nations. 
This mixed heritage was something of which Lewis herself was hugely proud, and something that would invariably come to play in her artwork, which we will get to in a moment. She was especially close to her mother's side of the family, who essentially raised her after she was orphaned at either the age of five or nine. Again, no one is quite sure of the exact timing when it comes to Edmonia Lewis. Her mother's relatives were semi-nomadic, and she engaged with them in selling Native American trinkets, moccasin sewing, and enjoyed all the freedoms of living so close to nature. You can really get a sense of Edmonia's love of the world surrounding her from her writings later in her life. One of her most famous sayings was, quote, There is nothing so beautiful as a free forest. To catch a fish when you are hungry, cut the boughs of a tree, make a fire to roast it, and eat in the open air is the greatest of all luxuries, unquote. She then would equally famously continue her statement by saying, quote, I would not stay a week pent up in cities if it were not for my passion for art, unquote. 1859 was a big year for Edmonia Lewis. Her older brother, Samuel, had moved west previously with the hopes of prospecting gold, and with his financial assistance, Edmonia Lewis moved to Ohio in 1859 to attend Oberlin College with the intention of studying art there. Although Oberlin accepted both women and African-American students in a time where accepting one or the other, let alone both, was actually pretty rare for U.S. educational institutions, this didn't mean that Lewis had a great time there. In fact, her experiences at Oberlin were fraught with racism. In that way, it was not unlike Henry Ossawa Tanner's experiences at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. But it was different from Tanner's in its severity. In 1862, three years after the beginning of her tenure at Oberlin, something strange happened. Lewis, ostensibly hanging out with friends before an afternoon sledding trip, served two female classmates some spiced wine. A nice thing to do on a cold day, right? Well, that may have been the intention, but the outcome was not good. Edmonia Lewis's two classmates became severely ill soon after. Though the women recovered from their sicknesses, and though doctors found no evidence of anything strange or foul play, Lewis was caught up in a firestorm of scandal and rumor. She, some said, had attempted to poison her classmates. The town of Oberlin didn't take this too well. And again, though there was nothing to point to anything concrete in terms of Edmonia's supposed guilt, that didn't matter. And some people tried to take the matter into their own hands. One evening while walking home at night on her own, Edmonia Lewis was attacked, dragged into a nearby field, and beaten nearly to death. After her practically lifeless body was found, she ended up being arrested for the assumed poisoning of her two friends. Thank goodness this story has a happy ending, or at least a happy-ish one. Lewis's case was managed by the only practicing African-American lawyer in town, and he led her to an acquittal, even though most of these so-called witnesses testified against her. Not that the rest of her residency in Ohio went smoothly, as you can imagine. She still experienced quite a significant amount of racial prejudice post-trial and was even accused of stealing art supplies from her art department. Again, no evidence came to light to support this, but the damage was still done. She was asked to leave Oberlin right before the start of her last term, unable to register in her final courses, which meant that she could never graduate. It was after these turbulent years that she decided to rightfully put Ohio in the past 
and thus she left and relocated to Boston. Art was at the top of the list for Edmonia Lewis in Boston, and thankfully she was able to make some worthwhile connections that made her recent relocation a real boon. With guidance and support from several abolitionists, as well as continued training under self-taught sculptor Edward Brackett, Lewis honed in artistic skills and managed to re-establish herself in a new, more welcoming environment. This time, she began to focus on one thing in particular, sculpture. Edward Brackett's specialty was marble portrait busts, a bust being an image of a person from about the chest up. And this rubbed off on Lewis. Even though Brackett and Lewis eventually had a falling out, his tutelage directly influenced his students' artistic output and ability, and it went well. By 1864, she had made her first sale, a sculpture of a woman's hand, which she sold for $8. Later that year, she enjoyed her first solo art exhibition, which was very well received. And at that point, things started moving pretty fast for her. She garnered more fame and attention throughout Boston and soon beyond, a fame that she used to her personal advantage to reject the narrative previously assigned to her, that she was a victim, the recipient of awful abuse, and a survivor of a near-death experience brought on by prejudice, racism, and possible misunderstanding. Instead, she used the opportunity to craft the telling of her own life story. The press, in particular, was intrigued by her fantastical stories about her upbringing. As many would do in the same position, Lewis tended to emphasize and or tweak certain aspects of her background to different publications and audiences, depending on what she was trying to promote or sell. I mean, it sounded like a good idea at the time, but eventually this would end up causing modern-day art historians and biographers a whole lot of trouble as they tried to sift between fact and fiction. Furthermore, Lewis's mixed racial identity, as well as her gender, were both heavily covered in the press. For a woman of color pursuing a profession in the arts was a novelty in the U.S. during this time period, to say the very least. And then, on top of it all, the fact that Lewis had chosen sculpture, long considered a rather masculine form of art making due to the supposed strength and power needed to both wield sculpting tools and to manage the hard materials typically used, like marble, which was Edmonia's go-to? Well, there was a lot of excitement to report on. And so the press, too, began concocting their own versions of Edmonia Lewis's life story. For example, one widely circulated account of how she became a sculptor described her as, quote, overwhelmed, unquote, by the sight of a statue of Benjamin Franklin in Boston. At that moment, Lewis, supposedly lacking a sophisticated vocabulary to describe her understanding of what a sculpture was, reportedly cried, quote, Oh, how I would love to make a man in stone, unquote. Narratives like this painted her as a kind of uneducated, rough-around-the-edges creator that audiences, especially white audiences, just loved. It was almost a kind of rags-to-riches story. Look at the artist now, who could not only indeed make a man in stone, but also had the right knowledge and training to do so and to make it big. And in some ways, this myth-making suited Edmonia Lewis just fine, because it allowed her to keep her actual self and her actual life more of a mystery. With such enthusiasm and press coverage of her life and works, Edmonia Lewis was able to save up enough cash based on her commissions and sales that she was able to undertake the next big step in her career, a relocation. 
1865, Lewis left Boston for Europe, joining a burgeoning population of American artists living and working abroad, just like we mentioned in our previous episode on Tanner. Unlike Tanner, though, she opted to give Paris a pass and, like Angelica Kaufman, found inspiration instead in Rome. And she certainly was not alone. In fact, something rather wonderful was happening in Rome at this time. It became a gathering place for a group of American women sculptors, expatriates all, who were working together and supporting one another's endeavors. The group included among them such artists as Harriet Hosmer, Emma Stebbins, and Margaret Foley. And it was Hosmer who urged Lewis to settle in Rome, arranging a studio rental near the Piazza Barberini, a place which, most auspiciously, was said to have been the former studio of the 18th century Italian sculptor Antonio Canova. And here, Lewis thrived. It didn't hurt to work in such proximity to the things that made Rome, in its long artistic tradition and history, such a hotspot for sculptors. Things like access to the finest white marble in the world, like the famed Carrara marble, and highly trained Italian stone carvers. At the same time, though, Lewis was nothing if not an example of the independent American spirit. All do it yourself and pull up by the bootstraps in terms of mentality. Unlike most sculptors of her generation, Lewis rarely employed stone carvers to assist her, completing her works with little to no assistance. It was one of those things that immediately set her apart in a field so chock full of talent. The other thing was Lewis's care in choosing her subject matter for her sculptures. She paid critical attention to what was happening around her, and she strategized smartly so that her works would appeal to the wants and needs of certain patrons. Consider, for example, the U.S. during the tail end of the Civil War, a period just prior to Lewis's departure for Europe. As art history professor and author Kirsten Pye Buick writes about Lewis, quote, During abolitionism, she found both reciprocal interest and common interest with anti-slavery advocates, unquote. And so these were relationships that thus prompted her to carve numerous marble busts of newly freed African-Americans and the abolitionists who worked so hard to assist them. Similarly, after her move to Europe and the abolition of slavery in the U.S., she transitioned out of these African-American and abolitionist portrayals. And like Henry Ossawa Tanner would later do in Paris, she transitioned instead towards creating religious sculptures, something she would have clearly witnessed in a Catholic country like Italy. She was aware of pop culture trends, too, and smartly worked within those realms. Take again, for example, two of her most well-known works of art, marble busts of the star-crossed Native American lovers Hiawatha and Minnehaha. Both works, created in 1868, paid homage to Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's epic poem, The Song of Hiawatha, which was hugely popular during this time period. And sure, it didn't hurt at all that such works were also a little nod to her own Native American heritage, which must have added cachet to her depictions. By no means was the artist's machinations an oddity. Not then, and not now, in today's contemporary field either. But Edmonia Lewis not only catered to the wishes of her audiences, she also became hot stuff during her own lifetime, just as Henry Tanner would do. Think of it, one of the greatest artists of her time, a sculptor receiving international commissions and acclaim, and she was an American woman of mixed heritage living and working abroad. If Edmonia Lewis isn't one of the greatest success stories in art, I don't know who is. And the good stuff just kept on coming for her. 
including one of the biggest stories of her career. That's coming up next, right after this break. There are so many benefits to lifelong learning, and that is why I love The Great Courses Plus. You get to expand your curious mind, build upon your skills, improve your memory and self-confidence, and the list goes on and on. I love the ability to both learn something new that's educational or historical in nature, and then also learn how to do something fun, like how to knit or how to take better pictures. Created for the lifelong learner in all of us, The Great Courses Plus provides access to thousands of fascinating fact-based lectures across almost every topic imaginable. And they are taught by world-leading professors and experts, exploring topics like ancient Rome, cooking around the world, and even learning to watercolor paint or get tips on gardening. And with The Great Courses Plus app, it's easy to watch or listen anytime and anywhere. And it's great for every age, beginning with high school or college students and even going as far as supporting entire families. I recommend checking out the course that I love called The Dutch Masters, The Age of Rembrandt. This is a fabulous course that covers people like Vermeer, Frans Hals, Jan Steen, and Rembrandt, and encourages us to understand the inspiration and evaluation of Dutch paintings during the early 16th to late 17th century. So continue your journey as a lifelong learner and sign up for The Great Courses Plus. As always, they are offering my listeners a wonderful free trial of access to their entire library. To start your free trial, sign up today using my special URL. Don't wait. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. By now, you know that I love art. And sometimes it's really nice, especially when I can't see an artwork in person, to have a new way to enjoy art classics. So I wanted to tell you today all about MOVA globes. These are gorgeous rotating globes that are powered by ambient light. And they involve the first of its kind technology that has hidden magnets that provide this a wonderful rotating movement. There are no batteries or messy cords in there, and they are a great gift for somebody who has everything. For me, it's a new way to enjoy art classics like Van Gogh's Starry Night or his irises. They take these wonderful iconic Van Gogh artworks and they are carefully recreated to transform something that's a flat painting into a three-dimensional piece of art. But it's not just famous art that they've transformed. MOVA globes are also available in over 40 different designs, including world maps, outer space, and of course famous artworks. Consider MOVA globes today for somebody that you love or as a gift for yourself. Go to www.movaglobes.com slash artcurious and use the coupon code artcurious for 10% off of your purchase. Again, please visit www.movaglobes.com slash artcurious and use artcurious for 10% off of your purchase. This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Welcome back to Art Curious. The acclaim and coverage of Edmonia Lewis's life and work kept on coming and her success was international news. 
take, for example, an article cited by historian Eleanor Tufts, which found an 1873 declaration in the New Orleans Picayune that, quote, Edmonia Lewis had snared down two $50,000 commissions, unquote. In today's cash, that's the equivalent of two commissions valued at more than $1 million each. No wonder that she not only enjoyed solo exhibitions of her work in major cities like Chicago and Rome, but that her art studio even became a highly popular tourist destination. Perhaps the most fascinating story about Edmonia Lewis isn't about her, per se, but about the life of her most famous work of art, a story that reveals the rise and fall and rise again of Edmonia Lewis's popularity, influence, and acceptance. But first, a little background. With her international acclaim and appeal, it makes sense that her works would be requested for the biggest events of her day. And one of the biggest was the 1876 Centennial Exhibition held in Philadelphia that year. Now, if this sounds a little familiar to you, that's because we discussed the Centennial Exhibition way back in season five of Art Curious, because it was the same kind of World's Fair type exhibition that was a celebration of the 100th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And it was there that Thomas Aikens first revealed his masterpiece, The Gross Clinic. For her participation at the exhibition, Edmonia Lewis went all out. No portrait busts, no small figures, nope. This was a huge event, and literally, she wanted to make a huge work to go about it. So she sculpted a monumental, full-body image of Cleopatra seated on her throne in the last moments of her life after allowing herself to be bitten by a venomous snake. The death of Cleopatra weighed in at more than 3,000 pounds and was a major sight to behold, quickly becoming one of the most popular works of art at the Centennial Exhibition due to its combination of Cleopatra's sensual beauty and the fact that her sculptor chose to memorialize her at the end of her life rather than any other moment from Cleopatra's much-lauded experience. But of course, this was a deliberate choice. Remember, Edmonia Lewis knew what she was doing, and she was always very smart with her intentions for her work. In the article, The Death of Cleopatra, The Birth of Freedom, Edmonia Lewis at the New World's Fair, author Susanna Gold traces the link between the ideals of freedom and independence that the Centennial Exhibition opted to celebrate and Lewis's choice of Cleopatra as her subject to be shown in a country whose track record with freedom and independence had been only directed at certain people. But as a woman of partial African-American heritage, she was careful not to allude directly to the emancipation of slavery, nor to any possible touchy subjects that might infuriate a still-seething post-Civil War country. But, as Gold points out, the knowledge that Cleopatra, though not typically portrayed as a black African, was indeed from the continent of Africa, that connection between what Gold calls the potential expectation of Cleopatra's blackness and Edmonia Lewis's own heritage and experiences with racism, was the ever-present subtext. Cleopatra at this time had become a symbol of Africa's power, of its beauty, a reminder of the glories of its historical figures and the importance of its present-day descendants. That is a big statement. But it was also a potential firestorm if made explicit. So Edmonia Lewis sculpted her game-changing piece in gorgeously pure white marble, effectively and almost literally whitewashing Cleopatra from a racial perspective. Now, all of this is enough to make the death of Cleopatra stand out in Lewis's career. But what happened to the sculpture next is crazy and definitely a story for the art history books. 
after the Centennial Exhibition, the intention was that such a stunning work would get sold off, either to an art collector or to a museum. But this didn't pan out for whatever reason. Certainly, the neoclassical sculpture style that Lewis and others were working in would slowly lose popularity. But regardless, the outcome was the same. The death of Cleopatra remained unsold, and the work was just too huge to ship back to Europe. So it had to remain in America. Lewis placed the work in storage before agreeing to exhibit it two years later, and there Cleopatra was shown stateside once more in an exhibition in Chicago. It was finally at this point that the work was officially sold. It was bought by a man known as Blind John Condon, a saloon owner from Chicago. Here's the really fun part. Condon's side hustle was a horse racing track in nearby Forest Park, Illinois, where his favorite mare, named Cleopatra, frequently would race. When Cleopatra, the horse, passed away, Condon was so distraught that he opted to refashion Lewis's sculpture as the horse's headstone with the stipulation that neither it nor the horse's grave would be moved from its site. But over time, as the horse track changed hands and morphed from a golf course to a Navy base to a post office, the de facto owners of Cleopatra, the sculpture, ignored Condon's stipulation and moved the giant marble sculpture to a scrapyard, where it sat ignored and unkempt. The death of Cleopatra at this point was all but forgotten. But that wasn't the end of the story. In the late 1880s, a retired fireman and a Boy Scout troop leader, quote-unquote, found the work at the scrapyard in Forest Park, and he decided it would be a perfect fit for a scout service or a renovation project. So together, the troop leaders and the scouts themselves glued and painted Cleo and then presented her to the Historical Society of Forest Park, not knowing of its maker or the meaning or the importance of the artwork but someone had an inkling that this work was something bigger. Historical Society director Frank Orland, through a long process of research driven by utter curiosity, Sherlocked his way into the belief that Edmonia Lewis had created the work, and his sleuthing tipped off Marilyn Richardson, an independent curator and Lewis scholar. Orland became sure that he was sitting on the long-lost, long-forgotten Edmonia Lewis masterpiece, The Death of Cleopatra. Richardson herself was hopeful, but wary, but she did what she felt was necessary. She traveled to Forest Park and joined Frank Orland to view the purported Lewis sculpture. And thus, it was found. Standing amidst discarded Christmas decorations, half-empty paint cans, and other detritus in Forest Park Historical Society's storage facility. And that was when Marilyn Richardson finally confirmed the piece's attribution. Frank Orland's hunch was right and the death of Cleopatra, after more than 100 years, finally received the honor it deserved. Today, the work is a star attraction at the Smithsonian American Art Museum, and I can't imagine a better place for one of the most fascinating and important works by a 19th century American sculptor. But I still think it's pretty cool that it was a horse's monument for a while. Many have noted that the story of the loss and rediscovery of the death of Cleopatra very interestingly mirrors the events of Imodia Lewis's own life. By the 1870s, Lewis was still creating highly sought-after portraits for the likes of former President Ulysses S. Grant, and her studio was still a tourist attraction in Rome. But as I mentioned previously, the excitement over neoclassical artwork was really out of favor by the time the 1880s rolled around and Lewis's clientele began to diminish. 
By the turn of the century, she had produced mainly religious sculpture for Italian Catholic churches and little else. At that point, she made a change and moved again, this time in 1901 to London. And this is also where much of the trail went cold. Much of what transpired in the final years of her life is still a mystery to us today. Like the death of Cleopatra, it seemed like Edmonia Lewis was disappearing from art history, even in the midst of her own time. She had fallen into obscurity so much that until relatively recently, the year of her death, let alone the exact date of it or the location of it, was only guessed at. Some thought she died in Rome, some thought that she was buried in an unmarked grave in California's Bay Area, and even still, a magazine published in 1909 noted that she was still alive in Rome. No one was really sure what happened to Edmonia Lewis. But thankfully, as interest in female artists started picking up momentum in the 1970s and beyond, a new understanding and reassessment of Edmonia Lewis as an artist took hold. And thanks to the diligence of researchers and scholars like Marilyn Richardson, Kirsten Pye Buick, and others, she has rightfully reemerged into the public sphere. And some of those mysteries are finally beginning to firm up, too. Only in 2017 did a coalition of researchers finally pin down the date of her death. September 17, 1907. As well as an answer to that long-asked question, where did she end up? Edmonia Lewis, famed sculptor of her day, died in London. She was buried in the Roman Catholic Cemetery of St. Mary's in London, and a brand new sparkling headstone now highlights her once forgotten grave. Next time on Art Curious, we're looking at an outside artist who made a huge, gigantic work of art that was meant for no one's eyes but his own. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel, with additional writing and research help by Adria Gunter. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. Our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. And social media help is by Emily Crockett and Caroline Holler. Audio production services are provided by Kabunki, the silliest name in superb podcasts and video. Let them help you at kabonki.com. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by AnchorLight. AnchorLight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, AnchorLight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit AnchorLightRaleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. We are a fully independent podcast, and so we rely on sponsors and donations and advertising to keep us going. If you enjoy the show and have the means, please consider $10 to help us out. And thank you to those who have already donated. For more details about our show, including the images mentioned in the episode today, please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. We're also available on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ArtCuriousPod. Check back with us in two weeks as we continue to explore the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history.